Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are continuing to talk about the plan of atonement theodicy. And last time we gave the groundwork for the cosmology of the atonement theodicy, which means, you know, what intelligences are and how God relates to the universe as far as like his power and or providence goes. And now that we've established that, God has enough power on this view that it needs to have a theodicy, meaning it needs an explanation of why these bad things still happen, because God does have enough power to stop them unilaterally, unlike on the other two theodicies we went over. And so we're going to go over that now. But to introduce it, you say the biggest difference between this atonement theodicy and the other two theodicies is that it views the world as an environment lovingly ordered to serve us, in contrast to the other two theodicies that view the world's evils as the result of a hostile and recalcitrant world that resists God's purposes, which I guess we went over last time. But this theodicy views the world as a result of God's power to order the cosmos to fulfill his purposes. As we read over this atonement theodicy, we're, you're going to see that this is basically the plan of salvation, as should be very familiar to most Mormons, but we're going to go over it in a way that you know, is a little bit more in-depth in how it answers why we have suffering in general on the Mormon view, and what the revelations of Joseph Smith and just Mormon teachings in general can bring to this, which is quite novel and, for most people, satisfying and beautiful. The story from the Bible that most people know that kind of tries to address a theodicy is the story of Job, and it relates to kind of the plan of salvation. Well, because Job is an example of agreements made before this life and how they play out and our consent, essentially. But the biggest part is all these agreements are made. It's a drama, and so you have people come out at the beginning of the play, and they lay the entire groundwork for what's occurring, but the people in the play don't know what's occurring or why it's occurring. They only know that it's occurring. And so that's like where we are. We're in the second stage of a three-act play, but we don't know what happened in the first act to set it up. And you'll see this quite adamantly throughout the entire Plan of Atonement outline that we're going to go over today. This pre-mortal life or this pre-existence puts Mormonism in such a different position than any other Christian tradition out there that it just plays out very differently. And so we have a lot more options and ways to explain things like this. So yeah, but you go on to say, I assume everyone knows the story of Job, so we don't have to go into that exactly. But you say, while Job passes the test, what of his children who die as a result of a whirlwind so that Job can be tested? What are we to make of their interests? The story, of course, is silent because it is Job that God and Satan are focusing their efforts on to prove him one way or the other. But why are they, the children and his wife, any less important than Job? How could they justly be sacrificed for Job's test consistent with God's justice? That's kind of what we're going to go over with the Stonement Theodicy is just that thing of like, well, here's the thing, you know, we're all here like, oh, I'm here to be tested. But in the story of Job, he is tested, but there seems to be a lot of collateral damage. And you went over a lot in volume two when we talked about the, the theory of ethics that you came up with, agape ethics, I guess you said. 
Yeah, it's, a, it's the agape theory of ethics. But agape ethics are not unique, but the way I develop it is fairly unique. Right, but I mean, it's Kant's categorical imperative. This seems to violate that saying that people should be treated as ends in and of themselves and not means to ends. So the story of Job seems to say that, well, all these people suffered just so that Job could learn a lesson. So, you know, Job was what was important and all these people had to be sacrificed in order for God to realize his purposes for Job. Well, that sure doesn't seem fair. Let's put Job into a bit different perspective. Here's what I think is almost always missed about Job. First of all, I think that Job is often misunderstood. A lot of people take Job to be poetry or something of that nature. It seems to me that Job is a drama, a play, if you will, with lots of different ways of presenting him. But the key to Job is the opening prologue where there's an agreement between God and Satan. And Satan in this context doesn't mean uh, Satan of later Christian thought, where he's tempting us and trying to get us to all go to hell. Rather, he's essentially the prosecuting attorney who is testing us, but not a prosecuting attorney as we think of it. He's the tester. He's the person who puts us to the test to see if we will prove ourselves to be worthy of the trust that is placed in us by God. So Satan and God have a discussion at the beginning, and, you know, behold my servant Job, he's faithful in all things. And Satan says, you really don't know that, and you can't know that until he's put to the test to see whether he will be loyal to you, even in the most dire of circumstances. And God says, that's true, so have at it. We'll test Job to see how he does. So the story centers on Job. Along the way, as you say, terrible things happen to Job, and all along, Job, even though he doesn't understand what's going on, he's still trusting God. Now, here's the key. In the prologue, the audience is brought in on the secret. We all know that everything is occurring because God is testing Job to see whether he can pass the test, to see if he will remain loyal to God, notwithstanding what happens to him. But the members of the play who are putting on the play don't know that. They carry on the play throughout in ignorance of the agreements and deals made between the Satan and Heavenly Father. Well, this is the important part for Mormons and where I want to use it as a jumping off point. There's a lot going on in this world, but there was a prologue before this life that we really aren't clued in on. But there were agreements and covenants and opportunities to agree with people to show up in our lives in certain ways, or at least to consent that they would be available in our lives and that they would be willing to undergo all kinds of things in order to give us the opportunity to learn what we need to do. Now, it may well be that others are serving them as well, but it's necessary that people consent, and we'll get into this later. But the key to the way I'm reading Job is that, in essence, it's a story about a prologue that we know nothing about in a preexistence, and yet there are all these agreements that are actually controlling and give the real focus to what's going on. And so the revelation that we existed before this life in the premortal existence is a huge light cast upon the problem of evil. It shows us that there is a lot more going on here than at first meets the eye, and that people are showing up in our lives in different ways, and we didn't begin our relationships here. We weren't just thrown into the world without our consent the way that Jean-Paul Sartre, who is an existentialist philosopher, asserts, you know, we're thrown into the world without our consent. Mormonism asserts we came to this world with our full consent. And we're here undergoing an opportunity to grow if we take advantage of it. And so the world is set up in a way that it serves us to move forward. Now, along the way, we ask the questions. You know, we focus on Job and we notice, well, all of his, his children and his wife seem to be collateral damage in the tests that Satan is putting on to test Job. 
and the book of Job doesn't pay much attention to them. And in a theodicy, of course, that's the biggest problem with a theodicy. Remember, we talked about the soul-making theodicy. And the biggest problem, for instance, with John Hicks' soul-making theodicy is that there are so many people who die before they can even get started on life. There are so many people who are simply overwhelmed, and instead of soul-building occurs, soul-crushing occurs. And so the burden of a theodicy is to explain how that could justly be allowed. How could a loving God allow those kinds of things to occur consistent with his purposes? And is it necessary? Does he have a less expensive way to exact the cost that's necessary for us to grow? And so that's how the book of Job fits into it. But it's extremely important to understand that Mormonism places us in a three-act play. And we know that in the first act, there were agreements and, and preparations made. We just don't know exactly what they are. And we carry on our play in ignorance of what's going on that was disclosed in the prologue. Okay, so now we're going to go into this plan of atonement theodicy. And so with that in the background of that we have this prologue that we're not exactly aware of, but things did happen. And through the revelation of God to Joseph Smith, we did learn about these type of things. And you say, according to Mormon scripture, we all could have remained in a pain-free environment without any natural evils. We could have remained in an arena of limited freedom to do evil, given the obviousness of God's existence, because we were with God. However, we freely chose to confront this world knowing that it presented the possibilities for choices between good and evil, and that sometimes evil may actually be chosen. We chose this life knowing that the natural world was designed to stretch us beyond anything we had previously experienced. Though maybe we didn't exactly understand what that meant, we understood and trusted Heavenly Father enough that we you know, chose to come here. So, you say the plan of atonement theodicy is also evident in the story of Adam and Eve, as it is retold in Mormon scriptures. And a lot of what we're going to focus on here now is from Second Nephi chapter 2, which a lot of people are very familiar with, because, let's face it, you probably read the first two books of Nephi more than any other books, because they're at the beginning. Right. You just don't get beyond those, so you, you know those really well, and you keep starting over again, so that's the most you get to know. Until you hit those Isaiah chapters, <laughs> anyway. All right, you say, Adam and Eve don't fall because they are overwhelmed by temptation. And as you know, probably, Mormons have a, a very unique view of the fall. Because a lot of people be like, oh, well, the reason that there's evil in the world, God made a perfect world, and then Adam and Eve just screwed it up, and that's why there's all this evil. But in the Mormon scriptures, we have what's called the fortunate fall. So Adam and Eve don't fall because they are overwhelmed by temptation. Rather, they freely choose this mortal life over a life of innocence in paradise because it is a necessary means for them to learn from their own experience to appreciate the good by confronting evil. They thus can become as the gods by learning to distinguish the good from the evil. They can learn to appreciate and prize the beauty of life, its sweetness, only by confronting the bitter. The challenges of evils that they will confront are designed to serve their interests because the entire world has been created for their sake and for that purpose. You're saying more of a metaphor, and again, Mormons will recognize from the temple ceremony that... Well, it's not just the temple ceremony. You get this in D&C 29. It's also in the Book of Moses, where what's known as the Felix Culpa, that's Latin for the happy fall or the, or the happy sin. You know, this theme is already present in the Book of Moses, where Eve gives essentially a speech saying, look, I can now see that the choice that I've made is necessary in order to move forward and learn from our experience. 
and there's no other way to do it. And so this is the explanation that's given in the Book of Moses and in DNC 29. And he's the one who gets it. I mean, there's a lot going on in the story of Adam and Eve. They represent mankind, as we've discussed before. Hachadam in Hebrew means humankind, and Eve comes from Chava, which means life. And so this is the story of life and humankind. And they begin their lives already in God's presence. And they choose to leave God's presence so that they can undergo the challenge of life in all of its bitterness so that they can learn to prize the beauty of life. So it's an affirmative choice that they make. And so Adam and Eve prefigure us in, in a lot of different ways because we too were in God's presence. We chose to leave this wonderful experience so that we could grow to become as the gods are. That's essentially the purpose that, that Adam and Eve are seeking. They want to become as the gods. And in the tradition, becoming as the gods is seen as the ultimate hubris. But the biblical texts themselves, along with the Mormon texts, can have God confirm that they have become as the gods because they now know the difference between good and evil. In other words, they've entered a life where they can be deeply morally responsible for each other. Where deeply morally responsible means we have both the capacity to do great good out of our love for each other and great harm because the capacity to do great good has a corresponding power of doing great harm. And so we're in this world by our choice, and this is the way that the Mormon scriptures set it up. All right, and I, yeah, I just brought the temple just because it says specifically during the ceremony, you are Adam and Eve. So as you've demonstrated, the story, whether or not there was an actual Adam and Eve, but the way we're supposed to understand it and the way that we make use of it is to put ourselves in the place of Adam and Eve. We too chose to leave God's presence by entering a place where we know good from evil or can experience that and on such. So that's a, a great story and allegory for what we're going through now. And then Lehi goes on to talk about how there must be an opposition in all things. And as you already kind of talked about, like he just says, without tasting the bitter, you can never know the sweet. If you never experience the bad, you can't know the good. And without the separation, he says, you know, all things would be compound in one, meaning, you know, just this nothing, not, not like nothing literally, but just no differentiation and no consciousness almost. And let's distinguish this from another position. Lehi is saying that in order to appreciate the beauty of our lives, to be able to prize the sweet, we have to know the bitter. And what he's saying is an epistemological assessment. He's saying we can't know these kinds of things unless we experientially go through them. He's not making the kind of assertion that is an ontological assertion, and that is that good cannot exist without evil. It's not the case that one must murder in order to appreciate the value of human life. It's not the case that goodness can only exist if there's evil. And so the ontological interpretation of that scripture ought to be rejected. But if you read the scripture, it doesn't present itself as an ontological assertion about the nature of existence and the necessity of evil so that goodness can't exist at all. Rather, it's asserting that in order for us to know experientially the difference, we have to have actual experiences of both good and evil so that we can appreciate the difference and learn to prize the good. And so it's an epistemological assessment being made by Lehi. You don't have to do bad in order to understand good, but it has to be an option that you could do bad in order for you to understand why you shouldn't do it, basically, you know. And I guess you'd have to see bad going on for that to happen. Anyways, you say there's two value judgments in this kind of thinking. One, that character forged through being tested is better than untested character. And Two, love which is freely chosen in a libertarian sense is more valuable than any love that is not freely chosen. 
just to give an example, a person can claim to be courageous, but until they're put to the test, courage is proven in the experience of actual real challenges and in concrete situations. So a claim to be courageous in the absence of actually demonstrating courage in those circumstances is an empty assertion. And the entire second volume is essentially proving number two, and that is that love requires libertarian free will, and that love that is given freely out of a free choice is more valuable than any love that could not be freely chosen in the same sense. And so these are not things that we're presenting for the first time. In fact, the entire theodicy that I'm presenting is already inherent in the theory of atonement that I gave, and it's also inherent in the agape theory of ethics that I gave. So the theory of atonement and the theory of ethics simply entail the kind of atonement theodicy that we're looking at. So you call this the plan of atonement theodicy, and I just wonder why you call it that as opposed to like the plan of salvation theodicy. It could be called the plan of salvation theodicy equally. It is the plan. I call it the plan of atonement because that's what Lehi calls it in 2 Nephi 2 and what Jacob calls it in 2 Nephi 9. So I thought I would be scriptural. Right, makes sense. Okay, so now we're going to go into the outline, and this is just going over the outline, and we'll explain things just to make sure we understand what you're saying here. I'm going to do my best to try to avoid to actually bring up any objections per se. We're just going to try to understand it. Well, let's make clear that we're going to handle objections in the next podcast. We don't have time to deal with them in this podcast. And so just make clear, we're going to outline it. It's going to take some time to outline and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of objections in the next podcast. So the first point in the outline says, the greatest good possible for us to realize, given our eternal nature, is to participate in the relationship of loving oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and thereby to be deified in sharing the fullness of God's glory, power, knowledge, and imminent presence. Any expounding needed on that? Well, the second one is going to expound on that, so after we do the second one, I'll expound. Okay. Number two states the goodness of realizing the goal of deification by participating in divine love to be at one in God is a towering good of superlative value that justifies confronting any challenges and evils of a finite duration necessary to attain it. So let me expand just a bit. The love that humans have for one another is simply the most valuable greatest good that not only we know, but that we can possibly imagine. Love is in itself the fulfillment of human nature. We're the kind of beings who thrive when we're in loving relationships. We're the kind of beings who engage in self-realization and reach our greatest happiness, our greatest potential, and experience the greatest joy when we're in fulfilling loving relationships. And no relationship is more fulfilling, more complete, or more self-affirming than the relationship of divine unity of the divine persons. They are the exemplars of what this kind of love is and the kind of unity that they enjoy in their relationship. And the relationship into which we've been invited is such a great good that it justifies undergoing any finite duration of testing, pain, and evils that would be necessary in order to obtain it. Now, notice that I use the word necessary. If it could be obtained without confronting the kind of evils that we do, then, you know, it would be incumbent on God to find something that's less painful. But the fact is, is that we must be in a world of the kind we live in in order to be stretched to the point where we can learn to be in this kind of relationship. Now, let me talk a little bit about the learning process here because it's important. 
I'm going to give two analogies. One is from the Karate Kid movie. Remember when Mr. Miyagi calls him in and, and has him come in and wax these cars, wax on, wax off with specific kinds of arm movements. And the Karate Kid doesn't know what's going on. He just thinks that Mr. Miyagi is using him and exploiting him so that he can get his cars washed and waxed. And then the next day he comes back and says, uh, Danielson, I'll paint a fence. He shows him specific movements to paint a fence. So Daniel spends all day painting the fence. The next day he comes and shows that he's going to sand the deck. And finally, Daniel just gets PO'd to the max because he stinks he's being exploited. Mr. Miyagi then demonstrates to Daniel that he's been learning something by just mindless repetition where it becomes body memory. He's learning the basic moves of karate in what Mr. Miyagi is teaching him. He did not know that he was learning something very valuable and, in fact, was learning precisely what he came to Mr. Miyagi to learn. He thought he was being exploited. And I think that, you know, that's so beautiful about this story is not only is he learning karate, but, but he then gets to own the car, this beautiful yellow antique car that Mr. Miyagi has that's given out of sheer love by Mr. Miyagi. He didn't, and he didn't see that coming. You know, it's just more than he could have hoped for. And that's the same kind of learning process we've got. All the time we're having experiences, we just don't see how they're actually contributing to the challenge of learning to love, of being refined into people who can reflect the light of Christ and who can engage in the kind of loving relationships. And we're learning how to love each other. We're learning how to be compassionate. We're learning how to participate in each other's lives by being present and showing up in concrete situations for each other. And so this is an essential part of learning. And in fact, learning probably takes place better when we don't know what we're doing because it's so lovingly administered that it's only when we look back and see what we actually learn that we can appreciate what's happening. Now, let's make this observation. Based upon my life's experience, I think, and based upon speaking with many people, the worst experiences in our lives often turn out to be the best experiences in our lives when we look back and see the person that they have made us and what we learned from them, and what was there to be gained from going through that experience. You know, there may be people who don't feel that way, but I do. The second analogy I want to use about the learning process is from Groundhog Day, and the reason I want to use this is that it's so instructive about life. Remember that you get essentially a weather reporter who goes into Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania on Groundhog Day, and he wakes up every morning and it's Groundhog Day again. I mean, this is the amazing thing. When Phil comes into Punxsutawney, he's a total jerk. I mean, he's self-centered. He cares only about himself, and he's really a jerk to be around. And there's a co-star, Andy McDowell, in the movie, and he just wants to get laid. And he doesn't care really about her, and he doesn't care about anybody else. Well, as Groundhog Day repeats itself over and over and over again, he becomes absolutely frustrated with life. He is so nauseated by life that he embarks on ever-increasingly creative ways to kill himself because he can't stand to do this over and over and over again. He just It's just impossible. Now, let me analogize that to the way life is actually set up. This is what Kierkegaard is writing about when he talks about the endless repetition of life. It is nauseating because unless we repent and unless we learn the lessons that are there for us to learn, we keep repeating over and over again our past, the issues that we've had in the past. When we engage with people, we have the same buttons. They push them. We react in the same ways. If we haven't repented and continue to do the same things that are sinful, we're stuck in our past. We're actually prisoners and captive to the past. That's a way of saying we're captive to the devil, I think, in the way the Book of Mormon puts it. 
And life becomes this kind of endless, nauseating repetition that is so absolutely mind-numbing and boring, we can't stand it. And that's the way that the unrepentant life is. And what Groundhog Day shows, remember, finally, Phil decides that he's going to dedicate his days to making the lives of people better. Learns how to play the piano. He learns French. He knows when a, when a child is going to fall out of a tree and he rushes to be there to catch him. He knows when the tire of old ladies is going to go flat and he's there to change it. He learns to play the piano that he didn't know how to play, and he does his best to entertain people and make their lives better. And finally, at the end of the day, instead of trying to get laid, he actually cares about the woman that he's with. And so he's not trying to get laid. He's, he wants to get to know her. He wakes up the next day, and this, I think, is he hated to be. You've got to remember, go see the movie. He hated to be in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. He hated the place. And as he exits on the first day that's not Groundhog Day again, he walks out. He's fallen in love with the people in the town. And he looks out, and he says, oh, these people are wonderful. Let's live here. This is a wonderful place. He's learned to love, and because he's learned to love, he's learned in a way that he's learned the lessons that were there for him to learn from his experience, and he gets then to move on. And it's the same way with us. Until we learn to love, we don't get to move on. We don't get to pass to the next experience because we're just endlessly repeating all of our old sins and all of our old way of life, stuck forever in the past with the same issues that we've always had. That's what repentance is all about, is letting go of the past and moving into a future where we can recreate ourselves the way that we choose to in a new way. Those are just two analogies. What I'm asserting is that God has set up life so that the world actually operates the way the Groundhog Day shows and the, the way the Karate Kid shows. There are all of these tests and experiences where we don't see what they're teaching us. And life is set up that way. Life is set up so that the very same problems that we have come back over and over and over again. And they get more insistent. And if we don't learn the lessons, they come back. They come back so that, you know, we get nauseated to the point we just can't stand life. And then finally, we learn to repent and accept the gift of the atonement. And the gift of the atonement is learning to love each other, to be at one with each other, to be really unified so that we're now not self-centered. We are, in fact, other-centered so that we forget all about ourselves and just love being with the people that we're with. So. What I'm asserting is that God's actually set up the world, and that's the way that the world actually functions. I love the way that Alma puts it in Alma 41. What we send out returns to us, and our greatest teacher is what life is delivering to us. Some people call that, you know, the law of the harvest, it's karma, whatever you want to call it. The best expression of my view is in Alma 41, so that we learn because the world has been set up to teach us because we receive back what we send out. All right. Good explanation there. Your third point goes on to say that without further experiential knowledge, we were not able to love as required to be in this divine relationship because of our inherent self-absorbed alienation and self-deceived individuality. And this is referring to the premortal life, correct? Well, it's set up in a different way. Actually, when we enter this world, I'm just going to assume that as spirits, we're able to connect in ways that in an opaque body we can't. Let me point out something that we can do here. So let's assume the spirits communicate telepathically. Let's just make the assumption. I think it's true, but I don't have to prove it. I'm just going to assume it. The fact is, is we're able to hide in this life because we have a body and we can hide our thoughts. So we are able to do something that I, I don't believe the spirits and certainly not divine persons in the kind of relationship that they enjoy can do. We can lie to each other. We can hide from each other. Now, here's this deep truth about the story of the Garden of Eden. 
we're able to hide the truth from each other. We're able to deceive even ourselves. And so we become very deceptive. And I set this up this way elsewhere. We become hardened in life. We go through experiences. We naturally have an open heart. But as we grow, we have experiences that teach us that we're just no darn good, that we'll never measure up, we'll never be good enough, and we're crap. And it hurts to the core to feel that way. And so what we do is we harden our hearts, and we decide we're never going to be vulnerable. We're never going to let anyone into our lives again to hurt us the way that we've been hurt. And so this is what the Book of Mormon calls a hard heart. And so we become past feeling. And we become very self-absorbed, and everything is about protecting our own egos and protecting our own status. And we look out after ourselves first. It takes an entire lifetime for most people to actually learn how to love other people and and to get out of themselves and to learn how not to engage in self-deception over and over again. Remember in Volume 2, I focused on self-deception as kind of the origin and the inevitable result of our mortal existence. And so the initiation of sin arises from the very fact that we exist in bodies in the way that we do, where we can hide and lie, and that the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is then to call us out of ourselves, to soften our heart, be willing to be vulnerable. And so the experiences in this life are set up to teach us how to overcome these kinds of issues. Okay, point four here, we've gone over quite a bit. But it says a genuinely loving relationship, by its very nature, must be freely chosen in circumstances where rejection of the relationship is a live possibility. So what we're saying is that that love requires free will. Simple enough. Number five, to teach us how to love in a way that we are fit to be in this divine relationship and to give us an opportunity to freely choose to be in the relationship of divine unity, God has instituted a plan to give us a probationary period during which we can freely choose to return God's love. Explain real quick what that probationary period is. So this is the teaching of the Book of Mormon about the atonement. Remember, like Adam and Eve, God could have executed his justice immediately, but instead he places Adam and Eve on probation so that they can choose whether they want to be with God or not. And the entire purpose of human life is to be placed on probation so that our decision isn't made right now as to whether we're going to be cut off from God's presence forever. But the most important thing about human life is that we're here to learn from our experiences to not repeat the same mistakes we make over and over again. That's what repentance is. And So the probationary period is just as the Book of Mormon explains it, a period during which we can repent when we undergo experiences and we learn from our experiences. So repentance is just learning the lesson that is there for us to learn and not doing the same mistakes over and over again and being able to move forward. It's being able to love being in Punxsutawney and not do Groundhog Day over and over again. It also seems like it kind of has echoes of the Job discussion before where it's like, you know, we have all these spirits in the pre-existence and they're with God, but it's not a tested thing. It's not something that has been proven. They're just there because they are there. So It's important because, remember, God is going to be sharing with us all the power and knowledge that's available in the entire universe, but you're not going to share that kind of power and knowledge unless you know you can trust somebody. And so we're here in order to show that we're trustworthy, in a sense. Now, God knows us thoroughly, but until we've actually been engaged in concrete situations where our loyalty and trustworthiness has been tested, there's just no way to know whether or not we're truly trustworthy. In other words, God is looking to see whether we will be faithful to him even when we're tested just like Job. Number six here is 
got a few parts to it, so I'll go over it one by one here. So, as a necessary condition to be fit to be in the divine relationship, we must learn from our own experience how to love. To learn from our experience how to love, we must be placed in an environment where we can learn by a being placed at an epistemic distance from God so that we can freely choose to love God in a situation where choosing not to love him is possible because his power and glory are not readily obvious and the world can be interpreted as if God does not exist and we can thus epistemically avoid his loving presence. Kind of self-explanatory. And then B, being deeply morally responsible for others in the sense that we can do both great good and great evil to others for which we are accountable. So again, just having that freedom to say, you know, you can say you can love somebody, but unless you have the ability to not love them, then it's hard to say that that's true love, and a love untested is not really love. Yeah, not only that, but the capacity to do great good for people is directly correlative of the capacity to do great evil. And so in order to learn to love in the way that's necessary, there's no other way. We have to be in a situation where we can also do great harm. And the real key here is a deep moral accountability for what we do, so that we have this accountability to one another, which is part and parcel of what love is. All right, and then C, which a lot of people don't like to focus on this one, but it's one of the main teachings of Jesus, is being confronted by others who are challenging and difficult for us to love, including enemies. And we'll go into that more later. This is just kind of the saying I have. People who are easy to love don't teach us much about love because they're easy. It's really the people who challenge us the most, where we really have to overcome obstacles to our willingness to love them. It's really our enemies who teach us how to love. They may be the ones who serve us most in teaching us how to love. And so, I mean, it's just paradoxical when you first look at it. You're telling me that my enemy is the one who's serving me. It's the same thing that happened with Satan. Satan wanted to take away human free will, and so God essentially engages in this ultimate irony of saying, okay, have at it. So he uses Satan as the engine for creating free will because now we can be tested, and Satan becomes the engine for moving forward the plan of God because without him it can't take place. And so Satan is essentially defeating himself and doing what he's saying that he wants to do to defeat us. All right, and then D being in a natural environment where bad things can happen to good people, because if calamity befell only evil people, we would inevitably be seeking reward and avoiding penalties rather than making genuine moral choices. So I think a lot of people like to, especially more in the ancient world, say like, oh, well, you know, if you do good things, only good things will happen to you. Like in the story of Job, like, hey, if something bad happened to you, you must have done something. But that's not the way the world works. That's what Job's friends are asserting. I mean, they have the gospel of prosperity. So if bad things are happening to Job, it means he must be a pretty rotten guy. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I really like a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes, which kind of sheds a different light on that. And so like, no, I mean, it seems pretty random. And, and I think it's Matthew. It states God sends forth the rain on both the just and the unjust alike. Precisely. All right, and then E, being given the opportunity to experience godlike powers by being united as one flesh with a spouse to create children in our own likeness and image who mimic us and thereby reflected back to us our issues, behavior, shortcoming, selfishness, and yet are prone to forgive us and love us. So not everyone will experience that, I suppose. 
No, but I mean, this is one of the reasons why becoming a parent is so valuable. It's because our greatest teachers are our children. We learn more about love from being challenged by our children. And, you know, I remember I was talking about people who are difficult to love. Every parent knows that at times the most difficult person on earth to love is your two-year-old because they're a real challenge. I mean, this is a godlike power to create life. There will be people who can't have children in this life, and this also will be a test for them, a real test. And my heart goes out to such people. But there are opportunities for adoption. And even if they don't have this opportunity, I've often seen where they become ministry angels to the children of others, often doing wonderful work. So I don't mean to leave out those who are unmarried and childless, and I don't want to suggest that those who can have children naturally are necessarily better off, because we all know that's not true. But the reality is, is we've been given a great gift, this gift to procreate and to participate in this godlike activity of creating life in our own likeness and image. I mean, Genesis goes out of its way to point out, you know, that that Adam is made in God's likeness and image, and in Genesis 1, that Seth is made in Adam's likeness and image. And so what it's doing is directly comparing Adam to God in in this godlike power of begetting children. And at least from my own experience, because you guys are my sons, and you've heard me say this often, what I've learned about love from being a father, I couldn't have learned any other way. It was just not possible. And it called me outside of, I've said this many times, the first time I looked and, you know, when Cardino was born, this is my firstborn daughter. When I looked in her eyes, I had a Grinch experience. My heart grew five times that day. I was not the same person after looking into the eyes of my firstborn daughter. I was a very different person. Now, that doesn't happen to everybody, but it happened to me, and I suspect it happens to a lot of people based upon my discussions with them. But the truth is, is that being a parent is a real opportunity to learn about love. Right, and F, being placed in a probationary environment where, unlike eternal duration of existence, there is urgency to choose because death could occur unexpectedly at any time. So I I think John Hick brings that up too in his Soul Building Theodicy, that if there's not this threat or this possibility that you could die, then there's no urgency to try to do anything. G, being placed in an environment where there are natural regularities so that physical life is possible and our actions have predictable consequences for our actions from which we can learn. Which is just to say that there's a natural law theodicy built into this in the sense that regularities are essential and there have to be natural laws that govern so the moral decisions are even possible. You know, for all we know, we're the only planet that has supportive life on it in the entire galaxy, maybe in, in numerous galaxies. So this is a very unique, amazing thing that life is possible to be supported on this planet Earth that we have, which would suggest that we probably ought to take pretty good care of it. But the bottom line is that, you know, we take for granted that there are these regularities, but they're essential to God's plan. All right, then H, being placed in an environment where soul-making and moral development are possible because the natural regularities cause real challenges and dangers, with the possibilities of many kinds of diseases, accidents, and disasters, and the pain and suffering of others call us to learn to be compassionate and charitable. Also self-explanatory. We know what it is to see the need of our neighbors, to see the need and to learn that everybody on earth is our neighbor. And we know from our own experience the kind of challenge that presents to us. And sometimes we're the recipient of the beneficence of others when we have our own natural disasters. And, you know, this is a major refining force, I think, in human life. I would agree. 
And then number seven, God has instituted a rescue plan to overcome our separation and alienation by himself becoming mortal to demonstrate divine love by his love and suffering and to become at one with us by entering into our lives as shared life if we are willing to soften our hearts and let him enter. So it's obviously referring to the atonement and we've gone over that a lot. So if you want to look more into that, we have several podcasts on that back from volume two. But, you know, that's obviously the centerpiece of the plan of salvation, whereas none of it would be possible without this. It's really incredibly important that we are able to overcome our hardened walls, our hard-heartedness, and to be willing to be vulnerable to others so that we can learn and overcome our self-centeredness and self-absorbed existence. And then eight, God has given us an instrument that vibrates in knowing response at the core of our being to subtly detect his loving overtures and spirit if we are willing to soften our hearts, but which can be disregarded or explained away if one chooses to have a hard heart. So do you mean like an actual instrument, or do you just mean that when you feel the spirit, you're feeling it somewhere? The analogy here is between the heart and the liahona, which is an instrument of detecting one's resonance with God. It's a part of the Mormon faith that, that we will know in our hearts and our minds the truth. We will receive personal revelation to verify our course and whether or not we are a part of God's kingdom. And it's an essential part of the plan of salvation, because if we had no way of detecting the truth, we would simply be tossed to and fro by every wind and, and every um, wave that comes about. But it's a very subtle type of an instrument, and what I'm asserting is that at the core of our being, we respond to the light of truth when it's stated. I have another chapter that we haven't gotten to yet, and it may not even be in this volume, but it is about the relationship between the knowledge of the Spirit and revelation and a testimony, which is a very common type of experience in the LDS tradition. Okay, so this is number nine, and it also has many points, and this is the one where we will be discussing a lot more the particulars because it needs to be discussed. You'll see as we go over it. But so now just kind of help us understand what you mean. And then you'll just talk more about that later. So number nine is God obtained the prior consent of those personal intelligences slash spirits who were willing to confront the dangers of mortal life and devised a plan to ensure that each does not suffer without some potential redeeming purpose as follows. A. God presented his plan of atonement to the personal intelligences, and after explaining the kinds of potential blessings, challenges, risks, and dangers, and evils attendant to such an endeavor, God gave each the choice whether to confront the physical world with its inherent dangers. So, you know, that's just you know, the pre-mortal this world. Is what, this is what we can call a general consent. In other words, we generally consented to the kinds of dangers and experiences that we're undergoing here. We'll discuss later to what extent prior experience and ability to appreciate the dangers that we're confronting plays into this. Okay, and then B, all persons who have ever been mortal freely consented to confront the kinds of conditions presented by mortality. However, those who freely chose not to confront the challenges of this life were permitted to remain as they were at that stage of their progression, but without opportunity for further progress. So, are you conflating this with the people that followed Satan, or are you saying that you didn't have to consent and there was no penalty for that? This is no conflation. It happens to be an express part of the Mormon belief system. But sorry, conflation was the wrong word. I just mean that you're associating them. I'm basing this on what the scriptures teach, and that is that before this life, there were a number of spirits who 
chose not to accept the opportunities presented by this life and to stay essentially where they were. They're damned in their progression, which simply means they're stopped. They can't move forward. And God honored their free decision not to move forward by experiencing this life. And so we weren't coerced to come here as the point. There were some who actually made the decision not to move forward and confront these risks because they weren't willing to, which is the proof that it was a free choice because we could have avoided it if we wanted to. Then see, God promised each that if they chose to confront these conditions as a necessary means of moving forward in relationship and progressing towards deification, that each would be ensured a genuine chance to learn the lessons they would come to mortality to learn. But none would be coerced to learn, and whether the lessons would be learned in the opportunity given remains up to each person or individual. That is to say that each person has particular kinds of things that we can learn that would most benefit us. And I have to believe, and we'll discuss this more later, when we're born into a specific part of the world under the circumstances that we are, that we're born into circumstances where we will have the opportunities to learn those things that will serve us to move towards divinity. And there's a whole section on this, but just a brief mention, you say, for example, like, it can't have been someone born in, you know, Ghana, you know, some year to learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept it and all that, just because he, that person would never hear about it. So he must have some different purposes, but life still served him. And then we'll get into that later. All right, and then D, some of the intelligences had already progressed before this life to the point that all that was needed from mortal experience to be fit for a fullness of celestial glory is to obtain a mortal body that could be glorified in resurrection in order to, one, gain power over unembodied spirits, and two, gain the capacity to access the physical world through bodily senses. And I guess E kind of plays into that, that those who already progressed to celestial glory before this life are fully served by mortal life even if they die in infancy. So that's from Joseph Smith saying, like, you know, this revelation that even if someone dies before the age of accountability, basically they get to go to the celestial kingdom. And I don't, is this a scriptural thing that says that they were celestial before this life or they had advanced before this life? Or is that something that's just a colloquial well, thing? It, it simply stands to reason because they can't enjoy a celestial glory unless they're prepared for it. And so if, if they die in infancy and they are already of a celestial glory, it follows that they must have been a celestial glory before they were born, essentially, because they don't have any further experience in order to move into the celestial glory. So what I'm doing is simply reasoning that they were already prepared for the celestial glory, and they didn't need a human experience or a mortal experience in order to gain that kind of glory. Okay, and yeah, because they didn't get it. They didn't get it, and they still have it, so it must be that they already had it. All right, so F... Once a person has had sufficient opportunity to learn what each came to this mortal life to accomplish or learn, death can occur at any time as a matter of chance, where chance means that their deaths are not planned. The timing and means of death are without particular significance. It serves no one's end. It might very well have been otherwise, and thus if someone asks, why did that happen? The appropriate answer is, there's no particular reason. It just happened. So... As you can tell, by the way, I've read that. I have some issues with that, but we'll get into it later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the key here is that, like in near-death experiences, where people come back because they still, you know, it's not their time. And I'm leaving here open the possibilities. It may not be true of all, but it's certainly true of some, that they come to this life in order to accomplish or do specific types of tasks and that their lives are not fulfilled and not complete until those tasks have been completed. 
or if they had certain things they had to learn, that's what they've learned. Or if they were here to show up for somebody else, sometimes it's like, I have to stay for my children. There may be certain things that they have to do in order to um, fulfill the purpose of a mortal life. And G, knowing that morally significant free will means that sometimes some must be allowed to actually do evil acts that could harm others. And knowing also that to learn compassion, it is necessary that there are conditions that call for compassion and charity. Some premortal personal intelligences who were willing, volunteered, and were given the opportunity to express their love for others by consenting to be subjected to pain, suffering, and injustices that, as a means of providing an occasion for others to potentially learn from these experiences of evil. So how is that different from at the beginning when you just said we all consented? Why this further consent here? Let me give specifics. So if a child is born into a family where the father is a vicious alcoholic, or there is a long history of sexual abuse in that family, it seems to me that at the time of birth, there would have to be specific knowledge of those kinds of facts. And the consent would be required in order to justify to send a a baby into that kind of an environment. And so what I'm doing is looking at the particulars of the world and saying, It seems to me that that a more specific type of consent is necessary in order for there to be a justifiable consent when we have specific types of knowledge about the circumstances that exist at that time. Okay. We're going to get into, well, I think some of these have to do with that too, but we're going to get into the idea of consent and the morality of consent and the ethics and so forth a whole lot. So more to come on that. Anyway, H. If a personal intelligence did not consent to suffer evils that do not have the potential to benefit them personally to learn from their own experiences, then God ensured that they would not be subjected to such evils through miraculous intervention. Simply to say that if you didn't consent to the kinds of evils specifically and such kind of consent would be necessary for it to be justified, that God would not allow you to unjustifiably confront those kinds of evils because you didn't consent. Now this is something that is kind of a proviso plan. That is, it appears to me that things could arise in life and the kind of consent that was given would not be sufficient to justify an evil to be experienced. And, and people testify all the time that, you know, they were saved from such and such trial or they were able to avoid the kinds of problems that they otherwise would have had. And so what we're leaving is the opportunity for God to intervene in miraculous ways to prevent us from having to confront evils in this life because, I mean, it's just a part of the spiritual tradition and it's a spiritual experience of people that that's actually what happens. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll get into that too. So, I, God ensured that we would have no recollection of these agreements and consents and thus we do not know who the angels of mercy are among us who have agreed to serve us with such love that they are willing to be subjected to suffering and injustice at our hands if necessary, to give us the opportunity to potentially learn unconditional love from such experience if we so choose. So I understand the first part of like not remembering, but we'll get into that later. But what do you mean here? We don't remember the kinds of agreements and covenants that we entered into before this life with people who are now present in our lives. It seems to me very likely that, and this also is a part of the plan of God, it has to be, where we consent to become part of a family and a family history and the kinds of things that occur within that family. But more than that, there are people around us who serve us all the time. And they come into our lives, they serve us, and when they're done, they end their time in our lives. 
But the bottom line is, is there may well be, and most people, and I'm one of them, believe that there's a more specific type of a consent where people agree that they're going to show up for each other in specific ways in this life. And they may or may not show up in that way because we're free not to. But the bottom line is, is that the consent has been given and arrangements have been made. So for instance, I have an older brother. I was born into that situation. I'm certain that I had to consent to be born to be his little brother because he was a real trial when I was a kid. I'm just being facetious. But the bottom line is, is we're born into a, a specific kind of a history and the kinds of consents and the way that we show up in each other's life. I'm suggesting that, for instance, siblings have a lot to teach each other, and it's by design that they have a lot to teach each other. It's by design that people are born in the same geographical vicinity as each other and that we show in each other's lives the way that we do and when we do. Now, we'll, you know, we'll talk about free will and how that plays into all of this. But the fact is, is that there's an entire prologue of agreements and plans that have been made so that we can learn and, and be served in this human existence. So you're saying the agreements weren't just between us and God, it was also between us and each other? Exactly. We made agreements with each other. And it's already implicit in what we've said, that some have consented to be abused, if you will, if that's what, if that's what we choose to do. They're willing to be born into a situation where abuse may well be likely. And... This is just me being facetious, but did you have the Saturday's Warrior play in mind when you went on that? That sounds, sounds very Saturday's Warrior, like, find me in life, and then we're going to get married, and that kind of thing. You know? No, but it's not inconsistent with Saturday's Warrior, but I certainly didn't have it in mind. The bottom line is, is that it seems to me that life is set up in such a way that people show up in our lives and that there are no accidents. It may appear to be random, but the fact is is that when things occur, they occur for a reason, and they occur in a way that I believe it's set up to serve us in our opportunity to learn in this life to become like our Heavenly Father and to learn to love each other. And this is not random, and there are no accidents in life. Okay. And we don't need to get into this a lot here, but just because just it comes to mind right now, when you were coming up with that, do you see it posing problems for making a fatalism or if obviously we are ignorant of these things then how on earth could we keep a promise that we didn't remember that we made this is implicit in the mormon doctrine of forward nation where people are called to specific types of things it's right there in alma 13 and joseph smith spoke this way many times i mean this is not just implicit this is an explicit part of the mormon belief system but they had to be reminded right it, it doesn't in any way impede free will because people aren't compelled to show up, they're given the opportunity to do so. But life is set up in such a way. So, for instance, did I have free will not to marry my wife? The answer is yes, I did have that free will. But I would be lying if I didn't say there wasn't a deep knowing present when I met her. It was like I'd always known her. Now, not everybody has that feeling, but I did. And there are a lot of people who have those kind of feelings. And oftentimes when we have experiences, we have a feeling like this was supposed to happen. This serves me. And now looking back on it, I can see how God was working in my life. And so this is all implicit in the Mormon doctrines of forward nation in Alma 13 and in the way Joseph Smith taught it. But it's also explicit because this is what he taught. So it's an express part of the gospel and the plan of salvation and uh, essential to it. Okay, we'll get into that more. I just see it having a little bit of a problem with your... That's your failure to make a distinction between predestination and foreordination. Yeah, yeah we'll get into it. Okay, number 10, the process of growing into God's likeness so that we have the capacity to love as God loves has been ongoing for eternity and will continue 
after this life in an eternal progression into new horizons and opportunities to learn from our experiences, just as God does. This is not the first time this has expressed Mormon thought. This is not the first opportunity we've had to grow. This is not the first world. There are many other worlds, and there are worlds one after another, world upon world, without end. And this is what eternal progression is about. He is forever surpassing himself, and there is no end to experiential knowledge. The kinds of experiences that we can have are literally infinite. And so we'll never exhaust the possibilities of experiential knowledge, and we will never exhaust the possibilities of growth. And so this is also an expressed part of Mormon thought, that our growth has been ongoing for eternity and will continue for an eternity in the process of eternal progression. That's the outline. We're, like I said, we're going to get into a lot more of the particulars in the next podcast. And we're already an hour, so like I said, that's why I reserved a whole podcast for that. And who knows, it might be more. We'll, we'll see how long it takes. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.